0: Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hi,
1: I'm Debbie Millman. Canva is great for designing visual content for work, no matter what industry or department you work in. Now, your next presentation with Canva Presentations.
2: We worship money, and money just really as a vehicle to acquire things, acquire certain types of relationships, instead of worshipping our connection to the universe, our connection to nature, in some ways our actual connection to one another.
3: From the TED Audio Collective, this is Design Matters with Debbie Millman. For 17 years, Debbie Millman has been talking with some of the world's most creative people about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about and working on. And now, some of those interviews appear in print in Debbie's brand new book, Why Design Matters, Conversations with the World's Most Creative People. It's coming out in February of 2022. In anticipation of the book, every Thursday, we're going to be releasing an interview from the archives, in addition to our new episodes that come out on Mondays. We thought it would be fun for listeners to hear not only some great interviews, but also to hear how the podcast has evolved over the years. In October of 2011, 10 years ago, Debbie interviewed Dori Tunstall about insights that anthropology brings to consumerism and branding, and about what design can bring to the conversation.
2: Design superpower is its ability to make abstract values real, something you can negotiate, something you can discuss with people.
3: Dory Tunstall after the break.
1: One of the main signatures of our species is that we make stuff. A lot of stuff. Everything from buildings and spaceships and highways to chairs and toothbrushes and websites. Every bit of it has been designed. Maybe well-designed, maybe indifferently designed, but someone somewhere put some thought into just about everything we touch, taste, see, and hear. What does all of this say about us and our values? This is the province of design anthropology, which looks at all of our stuff and the design process. Dory Tunstall is an associate professor of design anthropology at the Swinburne University of Technology in Melbourne, Australia. And she joins me today at the School of Visual Arts in New York City. Welcome to Design Matters, Story.
2: Thank you. I'm Great so to glad to, to you be you here. <laughs>
1: yes. So design anthropology is the focus of your study and teaching. So I felt that the natural first question should be What is design anthropology?
2: Um, Well, I think you gave a really good summary of what it is, is that if everything in the human world is made, then trying to understand what the making of things means, the way in which, you know, stuff from branding now to the use of red ochre on our bodies in the past helps us identify who we are, are we married? Are we not married? Are we sacred? Are we not sacred? Are we um, at a higher social status or a lower social status? All of the ways in which we literally mark our world is something that other um, species have not done to the same extent. And so that places us in a very unusual situation in terms of the impact that we've had. Um, But it also provides us with a lot of opportunities because we understand the power and influence that we have had. And with the right types of thinking and the right types of values, we actually can redirect them. I understand that when you were younger,
1: before you found your way to design anthropology, you wanted to become a medical doctor, you wanted to become a neurosurgeon, but that you felt that... You would be a great neurosurgeon, but you wouldn't be a very good human being. So why? Why is that?
2: Um, Well, I think trying to understand the varieties of the ways in which we can be human is really important. And you learn, you know, that being human is maybe very different. If you're, you know, a Japanese woman at the turn of the century, than you are a, you know, modern American woman living in New York City. And so understanding the differences between that is actually something helpful in terms of becoming a better human, because a lot of our behaviors that are inhumane are about not really understanding other people's perspective on things and understanding the diversity of the ways in which people can be in the world.
1: So do you feel that if you were a good neurosurgeon, you would have missed out on the ability to be empathic?
2: Well, I think training in neurosurgery, and at least in the way I imagine it, you focus on the sort of very narrow synapses between the brain. And so that sort of microscopic focus, there's a certain technical brilliance that you bring to that, but you lose the big picture. And at the particular time, I was much more interested in being able to see the big picture of things, because both of that interest in neurosurgery and the interest in anthropology is really, I was trying to understand what is it How do people think? How do people act in the world? Neurosurgery is one way to describe that. But I found I was much more compelled by the explanation for that that came out of anthropology. So would you say that empathy is a basic human trait or is that something... Because
1: designers talk a lot about needing to have very highly refined modes of empathy in their practices. Do you think that that's something that's learned or do you think that that's a basic human trait that's ingrained in us?
2: Well, there's a lot of um, studies that are coming out now in sort of evolutionary um, anthropology, which like before there was a lot of writing, you know, about survival of the fittest and it's all about competition. And there's been a huge shift in probably the last five or 10 years where they're actually looking at um, cooperation and empathy. And so now there's a strong narrative that empathy is hardwired in such a way because it allows us to relate to one another and that their survival of the species has to do as much with cooperation among each other as well as competition over resources. Um And in fact, you can't actually compete for resources unless a group of people are cooperating. Interesting. <laughs> <laughs> so you have to cooperate to be competitive. <laughs> um, and so there's a shift in that narrative, um, which I think reflects a general shift in values where we're saying, well, perhaps we need to be valuing empathy more. Perhaps we need to be valuing cooperation more because we've exhausted ourselves on this competition. So... It's definitely, in my belief, hardwired, but I also believe that competition is. It's kind of to what extent are we living those values? And we're in a shift now where we're trying to live the values of empathy. And I think this is reflected in design as well, where I think the myth of the individual design genius is a myth of competition, where your genius is based on your competing with other designers and everyone else being inferior to your creativity um, and your ability to design the most brilliant solution to the problem. And now I think there's, again, this shift where there's a lot of cooperation that's necessary to create a successful design. And even if you are a brilliant thinker, you actually have to work with a lot of people to make that vision, that concept, that ideal, real and present and manifest in the world. Um, And so now there's just a greater recognition of all the other people who have to play in that to actually make something successful. So you you
1: mentioned a word that I want to come back to now, and you use the word most. And, And the designer, the famous designer being the person that can create the most impactful design or have the most success. What is it about our humanity that
2: motivates us to wanting to have the most of anything. What comes with having the most comes recognition. Like, you know, it's when you watch some, you know, special about like, why did you become a rock star? And if it's a, you know, a male is normally, oh, for the girls. Um <laughs> um for the fame for the car for the money for all of these things and i that hasn't changed like why do you become the big chief of the village Well, cuz you get all the best girls and the best food and all these sort of things and that hasn't changed necessarily does it always come back to sex story
1: does it always come back well, to sex well there's
2: a you know there's a, there's a sex is really important story for any species it comes back to companionship or feeling like you're leaving something behind and sex, even if it doesn't necessarily lead to procreation, the way in which it's talked about at the level of species, again, it's our way of continuing um, to go forward, right? That we continue our legacy and our legacy is really just our ability to have impact in the future. And that is really, you know, an important thing to do. So again, talking about the most, I think that
1: design helps to create symbols that people then can use to telegraph where they stand with the mostness. You know, what is my level of mostness? You mentioned being recognized. And I'm wondering how we've evolved to be using brands now to allow us to be recognized in certain ways. And if you can talk a little bit about that from an anthropological point of view.
2: There's this wonderful book called Thinking With Things by Esther Pastory. And she talks about kind of different levels of social organization. So like at the level of hundreds of people, the band or thousands of people, the village Millions of people, which is sort of the city-state. And she talks about this thing where we move from just the village to kind of like the village with the head chief. Then it's about this differentiation. So you begin to see portraiture in the archaeological record, whereas before everything was kind of anonymous or based on, you know, just natural motifs. And you begin to see bling. And so this is where you start finding, like, you know, the coat made of feathers or um, lots of gold. And when I, when I talk about this, I talk about that. Think about what branding is. Branding is like visual bling in the extent to which you have, you know, you have the village of Coca-Cola versus the village of Pepsi. And they are trying to have you determine which is the best village chief, who's going to lead you to greater prosperity, wealth, whatever, make your life feel good, all these sort of things that they're promising. Um, and so... Again, that goes back very, very deep. It's just that branding is the contemporary name that we have for that particular phenomena where we're trying to figure out who do we want? Who do we want to follow in terms of them delivering on things that make us feel good or feel safe or feel more secure in our future? And right now, instead of it being an individual person, that now it becomes sort of a corporation. And then it's about those ties that you have with the corporation and the corporation's ability to make you see that they can deliver what it is that you need. Do you think that humans'
1: rituals of consumption are still as satisfactory to us as they once were? No. <laughs>
2: that was easy, that, to was, a fast that was easy to answer. That was a fast answer. Okay, why um, not? Why not? Before, things were always a way to mediate relationships, and those relationships felt immediate. So if you were an artisan and you made a pot for me, and you knew it was a pot that was going to hold water, um, so you made it in a particular way, and you knew that um, I wasn't particularly that strong, so you set up the balance in this particular way <laughs> so that it would be easy for me to carry it, um, to do what I had to do. That that part was about the relationship that I had with you, the artist, and who created it for me. And now there's so many layers in between that relationship that the things that you buy no longer feel that connected. Um, so you don't know necessarily the designer who makes something for you. You may know their name, but it's you know, you don't know them personally. You're not necessarily connected to the companies that are making things for you. So there's a way in which because of all this disconnection, that the joy of buying something is really now about the joy of just consuming it. Why why would there even be joy inherent in buying something? Well because For that moment, you think that this is going to be what I need. If I get the perfect dress, then all of a sudden I'm going to be taller and thinner and uh, more popular or something. And in that moment, and sometimes I would say that moment of delusion, (laughs) um, there's a joy in, in the search for that. And it's like, okay, I found it. And then when you put it on two days later for the event that you go, it's sort of it's not so satisfactory because you're actually not taller <laughs> or thinner <laughs> um, and maybe not necessarily that much more popular than you were before. And so because the, the buying of it isn't about a particular relationship that you're trying to establish, um, that, that joy you have is there, but it's fleeting. It's not able to be sustained.
1: record yourself presenting, and add your talking head to your slides so your audience can watch your perfected presentation anywhere, anytime. Start designing today at canva.com. Designed for work.
4: Hey y'all, it's Elise. I have another podcast to tell you about. It's called In the Making. It's an original podcast brought to you by Adobe Express. It'll probably inspire you no matter what you do. I know it certainly did for me. Search for In the Making in your podcast player. My thanks to In the Making and Adobe Express for their support. I
1: recently interviewed Tom Peters, and he talked about how quickly we metabolize these acquisitions that we think that they're going to give us things, and then we very quickly realize that they don't. And somehow, we construct a reality where we think if we buy something else, that will then create that sense of whatever it is we're searching for. And from an anthropological point of view, I'm wondering where we ever got the notion that any of these things would actually do this. Is it advertisers that have told us that? Is it something more deeper in our chemical DNA. I mean, where, what is it? Where did that begin? Where
2: if I buy that pair of jeans, I am going to be cool. I mean, it goes back to that sense of differentiation. You know, it's like when the chief puts on the feathered coat and says, you know, I'm going to go out there and because I have my feather coat, I'm going to be able to vanquish my enemies and comes back not alive. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and the code's still there. You know? <laughs> the code's still there.
2: Um, that there's there's always a question of the efficacy of anything that we acquire to somehow change our position in the world. A lot of the things we do around ritual is to sort of connect it to so many different things to make it work better, right? It's not just about the feather coat, but it's the feather coat and the chants that go with it and the dances that go with it and the meditation that goes with it that allows me to connect directly to the gods and the gods then favoring me. All those things try to wrap it up and a lot more than just the cloak. So in the same way that now we buy the coat (laughs) and, you know, maybe it's to protect us for the rain, but again, we have not wrapped to those other rituals Around it, or we have if we want a Burberry, because to protect <laughs> us from the rain, right? Or and we try to convince ourselves, and and again, maybe the brands that sort of last are the ones that you know, as we begin to wrap our sort of different stories and mythologies and rituals around it, that they they do satisfy, well. they do protect us from the rain, they do. Get us noticed as we're walking down the street, which is what we wanted, that moment of recognition and the sort of pleasure of of being distinguished for, uh, you know, a particular moment. Or they have a deeper connection where, you know, again, we wrap it around the memories that we have when we're wearing that particular coat and what it meant to the relationships with the people that we have. So the dissatisfaction that is happening, I think now is may or may not actually be greater than that in the past. What is different, though, is that the the types of ritual and the different levels, let's say, not just at the functional level, but at the spiritual level and the symbolic level and the number of layers that we wrapped things around and through was much deeper in the past than it is today. Um, and thus, because we don't have the number of those layers that our dissatisfaction is greater— the depth at which these things have meaning for us is less and thus it becomes more disposable or we go seeking for the new thing because it's not satisfactory it's one of the things i just turned my um partner onto very rich you know like 75% cocoa chocolate mm. as a way to deal with what he perceived to be his addiction to chocolate <laughs> <laughs> okay There are properties in chocolate that stimulate, you know, all of our pleasure senses and whatever. And, you know, because you're buying this cheaper bar, you're actually getting less of it, you know, per square that you eat. But if you buy one piece of very rich dark chocolate, you'll actually get all of what you need from that particular chemical in that smaller piece. And so, you know, spend a little more to get the rich chocolate so that you actually are meeting your needs without having to consume as much. And it's the same sort of thing, I think, with if you buy something that you need. You know, it doesn't mean like you have to go out and buy the most expensive chair, but it has the qualities that you want, the qualities that you need at the right level, at which you need them, then you only need that particular thing. Then you don't have to go out every week and buy some
1: To metabolize Yeah. Well, it's interesting. With chocolate, there is an actual chemical contained in the actual object, so to speak, that can chemically transform us. But when it comes to chairs or coats, it seems like we're imbuing that object with a certain power. It's a an abstract concept we're placing into a concrete object. That seems to be a fairly evolved way of thinking or
2: behavior as a species for us to be doing. Why do you think we do that? What I try to encourage with my students is to understand deep values. And deep values for me is about The you know, 85% rich chocolate, if you actually understand what those things are, and actually can build them into your design, because again, the skill of the designer is actually to be able to figure out that this color blue actually has this range of meanings that if we can sort of put it in the right context, will actually make this feeling manifest, right? That this particular material, which is, you know, soft and smooth, will have this particular type of response. Those decisions make real for people what those values are. And the values just mean things that matter to people, things that have meaning for people. Um, Like I always define culture as things that have so great meaning for people that they want to pass it on to, you know, three generations down, right? Right. If we can build those values and make them real through design, then I think you will find higher levels of satisfaction. And right now, or at least let's say what happened at the turn of the century where we have mass consumerism, is that we in many ways cheapen the values. In what way? Well, because what I mean, what people talk about right at that moment of consumerism is that, you know, before you had flour <laughs> and you would go buy flour and that undifferentiatedness of flour met a particular need that you have to provide food and substance or whatever. When we had to begin to differentiate between, you know, this brand of flour and this brand of flour and this brand of flour, we began to build on other things that was beyond that need to be sustained. And some of those things, those values that we built upon sort of rang more hollow and that if you chose a brand that may have rang hollow then then all of a sudden the the values that you're literally buying into then became more sort of cheapened. So do you think that this ability to create specific
1: objects or symbols or products connected with certain values is in some way reflective or connected to our ability or our need or our tendency to worship?
2: Well, I mean, that's where it comes from. The separation of the, you know, sacred and profane in the history of the human species is actually quite recent in what uh, really? Well, I mean if you think about if if the main period of that time is the renaissance, yeah. you know, we as a species, you know, we go back about 35,000 years or so. So within that, it's only been fairly recent that everything that we do has not been about worship. But I think a lot of the things that we're doing now is 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 not necessarily Not about worship itself, we're just worshiping something different. Mm -hmm. Whereas before we used to, you know, worship in a way that we did not differentiate between the human world and the natural world. And now we worship the things that are part of the human world. Let's say, you know, social status. Um, We say money and money just really as a vehicle to acquire things as a vehicle, to acquire certain types of relationships, that we worship those things now instead of worshiping our connection to the universe, our connection to nature, in some ways our actual connection to one another. Because the flip side of differentiation, which is, you know, again, as we talked about, is about status. The flip side of that is that the moment you differentiate, you separate. Correct. And the moment you separate, you disconnect from whatever group that you're um, wanting to belong to or needing to belong to or should belong to, but decided that you don't because they're not good enough for you. Do you think that there is a connection between
1: acquisition and worship?
2: I think acquisition works the opposite way <laughs> of worship. Yeah. Because worship. Is always actually about seeking that connection. So like when we say you worship, you know, God, that you're actually seeking that connection, that you're trying to bridge that distance. And I guess in the process of bridging that distance, you're actually wanting to lose self in that moment of connection that, that there is no differentiation between myself and God in the moment of prayer because we have become one. In acquisition, You're working the opposite way where you may be wanting to bridge that connection, but instead of you losing yourself, you actually want that thing you've acquired to lose its own identity and And become become part of yours yeah, and become you. And so it it operates in in the opposite direction, I think, of worship.
1: I read an interview with you in which you said design has the power to help humanity versus the unbridled consumerism that it currently contributes to. And I'm wondering how design can do that.
2: Well, what's design superpower? <laughs> design superpower is its ability to make abstract values real, something you can negotiate, something you can discuss with people. And the challenge has been, I think, in the past that, you know, when design in the modern sense came to the fore, that again it was actually part of this these value systems of disconnection. And now that there's a shift in thinking, so, you know, the whole movement around sustainability is trying to bridge that gap between nature and human and saying that we are actually one and we need to think about ourselves with that. The move towards design for social impact is actually trying to bridge the distance between social status, right, to sort of say, well, actually, you know, we all need to be connected in all of this that the actions that I make have impact on other people so I need to change my actions change my values um, so that I'm actually connecting with people in a respectful way and not disconnected and ignoring the impact that what I'm doing in the United States has for someone in Africa and vice versa so all of these movements are speaking about again a shift in value systems and Because design has this unique superpower, they are the the best positioned to be able to make that changed value systems real to people again. It's like a couple of weeks ago, well, a couple of months ago, I was um, judging for the Core 77 Design Award in the category of design education. And it was really... Amazing for me to see the range of sort of projects that were going on to the extent that in 95% of them, there was a really strong emphasis on sustainability and a really strong emphasis on sort of social justice, social um, inclusion. And that to me sort of represented, you know, a tipping point, because again, what's great about being involved with education is that you you are working with the future, <laughs> On a day-to-day level. And so to see that shift, you know, of 95% meant that the generation of students who are being trained now are being trained in a totally different mindset of what design is and what design can do and design's role in terms of the relationship with nature and relationship with other people that if they're thinking about these relationships with nature, they're thinking about the relationships with other people, and and they're thinking about it from the point of how do we emphasize connection and not disconnection, then it's like, okay, now we're on the verge of a major paradigm shift. I do believe that we are in
1: the midst of a real watershed moment in our behavior and our trajectory as a species, and and the last question I want to ask you is, if we were to move ahead 100 years in our evolution, how do you think we'll look back at this time? I mean, you're an anthropologist, so we're always looking back to try to make sense of what we've done and where we're going.
2: What do you think we'll be saying about this particular moment in time in 100 years? I just assign um, to my students a similar assignment and it's interesting because we've been having this discussion around, you know, should we imagine the future being more positive or negative, right? It's the utopia versus dystopia thing. And the thing I sort of said with is that if you imagine this sort of dystopia, then you'll design towards that. But if you imagine the utopia, then then you're actually making the possibility of that, especially, again, as you share it with other people that this is the way in which we can go forward. And so my utopian vision of kind of what it is is that they'll say, wow, they they got it right? That, you know, there's enough residue of iPods and all these sort of things to realize <laughs> that oh, there was a lot of waste at this time. But now you can see you know, how they began to shift, how, you know, there's all these giant tall buildings made of concrete and steel, but look, all of them have, you know, grass growing on the walls, that the walls are living in organic, that you can see that they lost their way, but then you can see how they began to recover it so that we are living now today in a world where You know, it's not just about peace and harmony and everyone having enough to eat. We still struggle with these things, but we struggle with them in a way that we know we're heading in the right direction. And that to me, I think is as as much as you can ask for the future is that they look back and say they led us in the right direction, that our lives are better now based on the decisions that they've made and They're not better just because we have more. (laughs) It's not about more, that we're more connected. Thank you, Dory. Thank Thank you you so much for being on Design Matters.
1: Thank you for having me. You can find out more about Dory Tunstall on her blog, dory3.typepad.com. I'd like to thank you for listening, and remember we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Nolman, and I look forward to talking with you again
3: soon. Debbie's new book, Why Design Matters, Conversations with the World's Most Creative People, is coming out in February of 2022. Design Matters is produced for the TED Audio Collective by Curtis Fox Productions. Interviews are usually recorded at the School of Visual Arts Masters in Branding Program in New York City, the first and longest running branding program in the world. The Editor-in-Chief of Design Matters Media is Emily Weiland.
0: You're growing a business, and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place.